Those of you who might not know me, my name is Ben Markey, and we are at just about the end of our summer speaker series. And this morning, we're going to be uh, looking into God's Word and uh, really just continuing what we've already been going through through the worship time this morning. It's a great uh, introduction, getting our hearts ready this morning. So let me pray quickly just to open, open us this morning. Father, you are the author and perfecter of our souls, of our lives, and we thank you for your word that is so powerful, and we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning as your spirit is at work in us, and we commit uh, this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to start on a cheery note this morning. Um, <laughs> I'd like you to, for a moment, think about some of the worst things you've done in your life. Um, some of those things in your life that uh, you know, cause you regret, that cause guilt, that cause shame. Uh, I know it's not really fun to think about those things, but, but if you're like me, then some of those things, whatever they might be, maybe stealing or cheating, um, lying to someone, maybe things related to lust or sexual immorality. Maybe you said some horrible things to people uh, at different times. And if you're like me, you can quickly forget the things that you say to people just throughout, throughout life. After weeks and months and years down the road, I, I generally can't remember anything I said to anyone. Um, but the things that I've said to people that were hurtful, those things I remember like they were yesterday. And the things I've done that I knew uh, were shameful, that caused me shame and guilt, those things I remember like yesterday. They hang on. And so often the good things are the things that we don't remember. In our worship time this morning, we sang and read David's lament after his sin with Bathsheba. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He was rightly overcome with guilt and shame and pleaded with the Lord for cleansing. This morning, we're going to be looking at what it means to have a purified conscience, and our primary text will be Hebrews 9.14. So if you have your Bibles, you can, you can turn there. And I'm going to start by reading verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews 9. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This morning, we're going to be looking at what it means to have a purified conscience. But before we, we dive into that, I want to make a distinction because I know there are likely p 
people among us that uh, when I start talking about guilt and shame and things like that, people just have an overly guilty uh, mindset that, you know, maybe, maybe you feel guilt and shame over everything, not things that are necessarily sinful. And so today I want to make a quick distinction that we're going to be talking this morning about guilt and shame over sin, not necessarily guilt and shame over just feeling guilty and, and shameful all the time. Uh, so we're not going to parse those things out, but if you're someone that, that does tend to go down those avenues really quick or those trails really quick, first of all, I'd ask you to breathe. Um, and secondly, though we won't go into details on that uh, this morning, the solution is actually very similar for both. This message started this past Easter when our Sunday school class was looking at the different things that Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection on the cross. And uh, to say the least, we didn't, we didn't cover all the different things in the 45 minutes that morning, but this was one of the ones that we looked at, and that is the death and resurrection of Christ is able to give us a purified and clean conscience. And I've been really, really blessed by diving into this passage over the last few months and, and chewing on it, and I still don't fully grasp all that it means, but um, this morning, I hope that you are blessed as well by, by looking into this. So to begin unpacking this, first we need to just talk about what is a conscience. The Bible doesn't specifically define it, but it's almost, Scripture almost uses it as an assumption that we understand what it is. Uh, the definition we're going to use this morning is a that the conscience is the faculty of the soul that distinguishes between right and wrong and prompts us to do right rather than wrong. Sometimes our conscience is described as the little inner voice that tells us uh, to do right. Our conscience helps us to know which direction to go, and then once we've, we've gone somewhere, it also tells us when we've gone the wrong way. So it's kind of two sides to, to at first which direction to go in the first place, but then also if we have gone the wrong way, it'll, it will help convict us that we've done that. It's interesting that all people have a conscience, believe it or not. Uh, and this is a very good thing. Our conscience is likely part of being created in the image of God. It's part of our immaterial self, just part of who we are. And it's part of the common grace of God that everyone is gifted with a conscience. Romans 2, 14 to 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All people are born with a sin nature, but on the positive side, our conscience, our ingrained sense of right and wrong, or that there even is a right and wrong, is a very good thing for society. Uh, without it, it's hard to imagine where we might be. Um, of course, what is right and what is wrong goes sideways very quickly when we don't use the standard of the Word of God. Postmodern thought will say that what's right for you is What's right for you and what's right for me is what's right for me. But even behind those philosophies of ethics and morality, we find an ingrained sense of justice. 
Uh, whether you follow Christ or not, if I'm sitting at lunch with you and your best friend and I take your best friend's sandwich and throw it in the trash for no apparent reason, there's probably going to be some bells going off in your head that what I did probably wasn't right and was some sort of, was some sort of injustice. There's also varying levels of how well our consciences work, uh, how effective they are. Our consciences are trained from the day we are born. It's kind of like in sports when you learn how to shoot a basketball or swing a bat. The more, the more uh, attention and time and training you put into doing one motion, the more ingrained it gets and the more, more set in it gets, more muscle memory develops. Uh, ideally, when you're learning things like that, you're learning the right mechanics the first time, because if you've ever had to retrain bad mechanics, you know that that's a very tedious and difficult process. I know I've definitely gone through that. If we're trained that what is right in God's eyes is wrong, and what is wrong in God's eyes is right, then it's going to be a challenge and take a lot of effort to overcome those things that get ingrained and, and really worked in. There are two main negative description words for the conscience in the Bible, or that associate with the conscience that the Bible uses. Those two words are weak and defiled. A weak conscience is one that allows a person to act against it too easily. I know that I shouldn't do something, but my conscience isn't strong enough to convince me otherwise to not do that. And so our conscience is weak. When it comes to gray areas or debatable matters, Scripture actually encourages us not to act against our conscience, because when we do that, we only make our conscience weaker. The second word used of in a negative light with our conscience is defiled, and this word defiled gets used in two different ways. Uh, first, it can mean a conscience that is morally corrupt, meaning one that has been trained that the wrong way is the right way. And then the second way that defiled is used in Scripture when talking about a conscience is to mean a conscience that has been stained, is impure or unclean. And um, when, we, when, we, when we've done something, when we've gone the wrong way and our conscience convicts us that we've gone the wrong way, that's when our conscience becomes defiled in the sense that um, we know we've done something wrong. And then we need our conscience to be purified or cleansed, as our passage in Hebrews today talks about and describes. Another illustration that I think is helpful in thinking about our conscience is, is a compass, especially uh, as it relates to using our conscience to, to follow Christ. And so I have a compass up here. It's too small. Uh, probably for you to see it. There's one on the screen. Um, but a compass is used to find direction, right? The needle in the compass always points towards the magnetic pole of the North Pole. And so if you know, if the needle is pointing that direction, you know which way is north, you know which way is south, east, and west. We are all born uh, with a conscience, with a compass. But when we're born... Let's just say that it comes with a, a piece of paper over it, and we can't see the needle, 
But we have a line drawn on this compass, and basically what we do is we take this compass and we point that arrow whatever direction that we want to go. And that's, that's the direction that we go because there's no standard that we're living off of. When we come to Christ, the scales are lifted from our spiritual eyes. Like we said, saying this morning of, of opening the eyes of our hearts, that the scales are lifted, that paper comes off, and now we can see the needle. Now we can see the direction that God wants us to go. And our conscience and the Spirit of God helps that needle to keep pointing in the right direction. But we still have a choice as followers of Christ, right? We can, we can use the needle the right way, the compass the right way, and align on a, on a compass of this style. When you align the, the north on the dial with the north on the needle, then it's aligned and you go the right way. But we can still choose to align our north, the north on the dial, in a different direction than the needle is pointing. And when we do this, we know that we end up going in the wrong direction, right? We get put on a bad heading, leading us further away from the road God has for us. And another quality of a compass, if we know how to read it, is that it'll also tell us when we have gone the wrong way, much like our conscious, our conscious convicts us when we have gone the wrong way. And just one other part to add to this illustration that I think is really helpful is for those of you who know how to use a map to, to find direction or use a compass to find direction, if you pair it with a map, it's going to be a lot more effective. And for us, our map is the Word of God. So when we combine our conscience and the Spirit of God with the Word of God, our map, we have a very, a much clearer path of which direction to go in, in following Christ. So hopefully that provides a basic explanation of what our conscience is. The point of our passage today, though, is what about when I do sin? What about when I do feel guilt and shame when I disobey Christ? This is a problem that goes back to the garden, that goes back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. Um, they felt guilt and shame, and they made clothing for themselves and hid from God. At that point, sin entered the world, and the relationship between God and man was fractured. The relationship between man and man, between Adam and Eve, was fractured. And in the plan of redemptive history, we see God progressively making a way for us to get back to fellowship with him. But the problem again and again is our decision to follow our own direction rather than direction, the direction that is pleasing to God. The writer of Hebrews gives us a lot of insight into what God is doing throughout redemptive history, and especially as it relates to the Old Covenant and the, and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, the one established through Moses that gave us the law and the sacrificial system, was a good thing. It gave us a way to uh, seek cleansing and forgiveness through the sacrificial system. And it gave us the, the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies where God himself was dwelling among the people. Hebrews 8.5 tells us that these elements of the old covenant, the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, were copies and shadows of their heavenly realities. 
So for us today, a lot of times maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to look at these things, but they're really helpful when we try to understand the actual heavenly realities behind the Old Covenant. And it's helpful to understand the significance of what Christ has done. If the Old Covenant was like dial-up communication with God, you know, dial-up internet, uh, the New Covenant is like high-speed wireless uh, connection with God. Some of you understand that analogy. I might be dating myself a bit. Uh, but the point is, the Old Covenant was good, but the New Covenant was exceedingly better as soon as it was announced. The reason the New Covenant is better is because it was founded on Christ. If we go to our text in Hebrews, in chapter 8, verses 6 through 7, it says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Jesus has many roles, and we know that he is both he is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. The book of Hebrews primarily focuses on his role as priest. And if you start reading at the beginning of Hebrews, in the first number of chapters, you'll find this beautiful explanation of how Jesus is the great high priest. And then when you get to chapters 8, 9, and 10, which really are, are our message this morning could really cover all three chapters, uh, but 8, 9, and 10 really explain what it means that Jesus is our great high priest, that he's fulfilled the old covenant, and, how, and what that means for us today. A priest, if you're not familiar with that term, is a mediator, a go-between between God and man. You can think of a mediator in a conflict. We have this you know, in, in life today where you have two sides that are dis- at disagreement, and there's a mediator in between that helps to resolve the issues between the two parties. And a priest in the Bible is, is a mediator, but the difference here is that there's no problem on each side. The problem is fully on, on our side, right? We are fallen and sinful, and God is perfect and holy, and we stand in light uh, in needing of forgiveness for the, the wrath of God because of being against his holy nature. So in the Old Covenant, priests would offer sacrifices to God and intercede on behalf of the people as a request to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus is the great high priest and the mediator, or the go-between, of the New Covenant. Now, in the New Covenant, it is Christ who stands between us and God rather than a, a human representative of a priest. We have Christ himself. We go to our main text for today in chapter 9. The first part of chapter 9 talks about the tabernacle, how there was this first section called the holy place, that there is a veil And then behind that veil was the most holy place, or the holy of holies, where God himself dwelt. And if we pick up in in verse 6, it says, These preparations 
Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. From the text we've read this morning already, we have a growing list of reasons why the, the Old Covenant was weak. First, we already mentioned the Old Covenant. The, this was shadows and copies of the heavenly realities, not the actual things. The gifts and sacrifices of the Old Covenant weren't perfect, and they weren't sufficient. In Hebrews 10, verses 4 to 6, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. The sacrifices also were temporary. Hebrews 10.11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This repetition of doing the sacrifices again and again and again show that they're not permanent, that they're not sufficient, that they're not going to do what we need. And so this reputation, repetition of continued sacrifice shows us, all these weaknesses show us that the old covenant was unable to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. But the good news is that the shadows of the old covenant find their fulfillment in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And this is the joy that we, that we learn about starting in verse uh, 11 of Hebrews 9. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer Sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I think we're missing a slide here, so I'll just I'll talk through them. Um, so the new the new covenant. First of all, these were not shadows and copies; these were the real thing. 
right? These were the heavenly realities. Jesus didn't enter the tent and the Holy of Holies. He entered into heaven itself and went into the presence of the Father. Secondly, Jesus was a perfect sacrifice. He was without sin and his sacrifice was his own shed pure blood. Next, he was a sufficient sacrifice. In the sacrificial system, the priest would offer the life or blood of animals. In this new arrangement, this is the Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice. And this sacrifice is the precious and dearly loved Son of God himself. The sacrifice itself is of exceeding value. It's also a once-for-all sacrifice rather than a temporary sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 tells us that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." In the Old Covenant, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies repeatedly and stand at all times, his work never completed, hoping to make it out alive. Jesus goes into heaven itself, giving a once-for-all sacrifice, and having completed the work, sits down at the right hand of God, his work finished, and now interceding on our behalf. And this work of Christ is effective for us and for our salvation. I'm going to quickly look at what this means in our verses here this morning, in our verse here this morning in, in verse 14. First of all, Jesus has accomplished for us a purified conscience from dead works. And herein is the the answer to the problem that we started with at the beginning of the message. How do we deal with the shame and guilt of our sin? And the answer is by accepting the forgiveness of Christ. It is only the once for all atoning sacrifice of Christ that has the power to forgive all sins, past, present, and future. And that forgiveness is what is able to cleanse the conscience of sinners. If the sacrifice wasn't perfect, if the sacrifice wasn't sufficient, and if the sacrifice was temporary, then by all means, we should have reason to worry and reason to feel uh, and reason to fear. But praise be to God, that isn't the case. Society will tell us that we need to forgive ourselves. When you think about that, it doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. We have absolutely nothing adequate to offer to merit our forgiveness. So many people try to deal with the pain of a stained conscience in tragic ways. We self-medicate. We try to drown the hurt and numb the pain. We hurt ourselves. We try to be good enough to earn forgiveness through good works. But it doesn't work. The only solution is the forgiveness of Christ that is able to save and cleanse us from the inside out. And so we can't forgive ourselves. Rather, we need to accept the forgiveness of Christ. 
So if you've turned to Christ and you're trusting him alone for, for salvation, then all sins, past, present, and future have been forgiven. You're robed with the righteousness of Christ so that it is not your righteousness that matters, but that of the spotless lamb of God. He has taken your place. So when you're tempted, when I'm tempted to be chained by guilt of past sin, what I'm really doing is not trusting in the sufficiency of Christ's forgiveness. My faith is weak, and I need to strengthen my faith. The first Adam brought sin and shame into the world. The second Adam, Christ, has provided a cure for sin and a cure for shame. This purification from sin also comes with a warning. In verse 14, it says that we have been saved from from dead works or purified from dead works. These dead works are the things that come out of our heart, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and so on. All these things are evil and come from within and they defile the person. They come from death and they lead to death. The works of God are life-giving and they lead to life. In John 8, Jesus has an encounter with a woman who is caught in adultery and a sin of immense shame and condemnation. By the law, she deserved to be stoned, but Jesus saves her from her accusers and says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She answers, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The forgiveness of Christ is not a pass to continue in dead works and sin, but a, but a call to follow Christ. And Hebrews gives us this same warning in, in chapter 10. I think the warning can be summarized in this way. When we live, we live now between the already and the, and the not yet. So if we've been, if we've been forgiven, our, if, we've been, if we've sought forgiveness and put our faith in Christ then we are forgiven, but we are not yet glorified. So as long as we have these sinful bodies, we're going to continue sinning until the day that uh, we enter, uh, enter heaven. But what is our response when we do sin? We should still feel remorse when we sin because sin is offensive to God. The danger is that when we sin, we think it's okay. We somehow train our conscience that sin isn't sin. One of the greatest temptations we fight, or it is one of the greatest temptations we fight, we think it's not that bad, everyone else is doing it. I can't help it, it's just who I am, or once more won't hurt, I'll be forgiven again. And these, these are lies that we are tempted to believe. Sin should cause us to be broken and to daily confess our sins to Christ, because when we do this, He is faithful and and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This daily confession of sin doesn't forgive us or somehow renew our our salvation. Rather, it's about maintaining a close and vibrant relationship with the living God. This cleansing from sin is also a call to serve the living God. The result of having a cleansed conscience in in verse 14 isn't to sit down and take it easy. It says that we're to put off dead works so that we can serve the living God. 
It's when we truly set our hearts on serving God that we can have the greatest victory in leaving the old man behind. And one of the reasons why I like the compass illustration is that just knowing the right direction to go isn't really all that exciting, right? If we have a map and have a compass and just know, well, over there's how to, where we're trying to go and where we're trying to get, but we don't actually take the journey, there's really, it's really not all that exciting, right? The adventure is in actually in going out and embarking on the, on the adventure. And so with serving God, following Jesus, it's an amazing privilege and calling to enter into actually following Jesus in our lives. And then finally, as we follow him throughout our lives, the end point is a promised eternal inheritance with Christ. So this morning, we've covered a lot of ground, but I'd like to ask you, where are you in your journey this morning? If you've never accepted the forgiveness of sins offered by Christ, that's, that's a great place to start. Maybe you've confessed your sins to Christ, but your actions are still full of dead works. I know that was very true in my life. I accepted Christ at a young age, around the the age of four. When I was a teenager, I realized that my life didn't reflect that confession. And so at that point, I rededicated my life to Christ. So if that's you this morning, I'd encourage you to do that as well. And maybe you're following Christ but you're still presuming upon the grace of God in certain areas of your life. Just continuing in sin, sinning against your conscience and against the word of God. I've been there too, and it's scary. I beg you not to live another day in that death trap. Finally, our main thought of of this morning Are you being held captive today by a guilty conscience that remembers shame and not the forgiveness of Christ? In the same passage in Hebrews, it tells us that in the new covenant, God will be merciful toward our iniquities and will remember our sins no more. So if the God of the universe is willing to lay down his precious son in order to save us and remember our sins no more, then shouldn't we be willing to trust and accept his forgiveness and live with a cleansed conscience? The worship team is going to lead us in one final song. The song is, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. And I invite you to stand. As they begin playing, though, before you start singing, I'd invite you to spend some time in prayer and meet God wherever you're at this morning. Um, And then once you get to the point where you can sing those words, it is well with my soul, then join in and sing along.
10, 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You're dismissed. It is well.